This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, Good morning again. My name is Ted Sin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a delight and an honor uh, to be here in our sermon times. We sort of committed ourselves to walking through at least the first portion of the book of Exodus. And in the first portion of the book of Exodus, we see God uh, delivering his people from slavery. Uh, Last week, we wrapped up a multi-week study on all of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4, in which God converted Moses to a relationship with himself and called Moses uh, into his mission. And, and in a couple of weeks, uh, Lord willing, we'll be in chapter 5. We'll actually watch Moses uh, and his uh, bigger brother Aaron, we'll watch them in Egypt sort of living out uh, the ministry that God's called uh, them to. But at the end of chapter 4, we're going to spend a couple of weeks on this, uh, Moses provides some of the details that sort of happened along the way sort of between his call and the beginning of his ministry. In in verse 18, uh, Moses writes very briefly about his interaction with his father-in-law Jethro and essentially seeking his his blessing and his permission to to move out and to move back to Egypt. And um, scholars can debate all day long, was he being deceptive or was he being loving and how he presented his request to Jethro. And since I'm not sure which it is, there's not much of a sermon there uh, for us. Uh, in, in verse 19, uh, Moses is uh, told by God that the, the men, the Pharaoh and the officers with that Pharaoh who were seeking his life 40 years before have now died. And as he goes back to Egypt, he doesn't need to be expected uh, to be arrested and, and executed. In verse 20, uh, we find out that Moses uh, took his wife and his sons with him. So as Moses as a shepherd would meander around uh, the land of Midian, even getting close to Egypt, we find now that this is not just another business trip for Moses, that he piles his family uh, onto uh, animals that can carry them and that he takes them with him. He knows they're relocating. Uh, He knows that they're going to relocate, excuse me, in the promised land uh, with a pretty significant layover uh, in Egypt. And so finally, Moses tells us that he had the staff of God. This, at this point, he's calling the staff in his hand uh, the staff of God, the staff that Moses had used for 40 years uh, to shepherd and to protect and to deliver Jethro's sheep uh, had now become the staff of God, and, and, and Moses would now use it uh, to shepherd and to deliver and to protect God's sheep, uh, the Israelites. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to focus our attention on three verses, verses 21 to 23. And as we do this, I want to consider sort of how abnormal and different this is for us, I guess for me, essentially as a teacher. Up until now in Exodus, we've been going rather quickly, covering large chunks of the story, uh, even a chapter at a time. And uh, this week, we kind of go from warp speed to a slow crawl. And I want you to know how abnormal and strange and different this is in another sense, that as the teacher 
Um, and as the pastor, I've been so tempted to, this week uh, to sort of speed up and skip over um, this clear teaching in our text. I've been sort of tempted to go right past it. And in fact, as I've studied most of the other preachers who have handled Exodus uh, presently or in the past, most of those pastors just kind of skipped over verses 21 to 23, or they mentioned them in a brief sentence or two so quickly that hopefully they did, you didn't hear them. And, uh, and I just feel like God wants us to slow down and look at it. And, and uh, it, it's going to essentially be my first Presbyterian sermon. And uh, I wanted to avoid it, but I couldn't do anything about it, um, which is a bad, sovereign Presbyterian joke. And so you're saying, like, I was asleep during the Scripture reading. What's the big deal? Uh, the text this morning is the first mention of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's a truth and a topic. It's a conversation. It's a doctrine. It's incredibly difficult to understand, even more difficult uh, to, ex- to accept. And, and so in order to sort of uh, avoid the difficulty, in order to avoid the debate, uh, most of those who have gone before me have shown the better part of wisdom and skipped right over it. Um, but I am intent on shrinking this church, and so... I'm going to have us uh, go right through it. Because in a moment, I really hope to offend both Presbyterians and non-Presbyterians. So uh, in order to not uh, skip over it or fly by it. And this is the reason I decided to go into it, just to be totally honest, because I wanted to skip it. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is going to come up 18 more times in the next 10 chapters. And so while I was tempted to run, I realized that I couldn't hide. And and, uh, uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not only in Exodus, but it's actually brought up by Paul in Romans in his theological masterpiece. And so it's like, if I don't ever get you to read the Old Testament in CBR, I might one day get you to read the New Testament, and you're going to discover uh, this teaching there. And Paul essentially says, if you don't understand what's going on with Pharaoh's heart, you're going to miss out on a huge part of God in his heart. And and so you just have to eventually get in there and look at it and, and try and figure it out. My goal for you is for you to read the Bible for yourself. One of my goals in the way I teach and preach is to help you understand how to read the Bible yourself and to give you a desire to read it more. And so I can't just preach on the topics I like or understand. I can't just teach on the parts of the book I like or understand. Even when I don't understand and don't like it, I've got to enter in to these sections of these books um, that, that, uh, that God has written. And the reason I want you to read all of God's Word is because all of God's Word is His self-revelation. To really know Him, you have to read it all. All of God's Word is His story of saving His people. All of God's Word is His powerful, living, and active strength uh, saving His people. And so if you're still thinking, what's the big deal, Uh, you're about to find out, all right? So verses 21 to 23, the first mentioning of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and I want to look at it this way, mystery, worship, and sonship. Mystery, worship, and sonship. If you would, pick up in verse 21 with me. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. Literally, he says, all the miracles I've put in your hand, speaking of the staff. And so you remember last week, uh, we saw that, that God gave Moses the ability and the power to perform these miraculous signs. And the signs were there to credential or to prove or to attest to the word of God and what he had promised would happen. And the signs, God said ex- explicitly that they, the expressed purpose of the sign is to bring about faith and belief and listening in those who see them. And so if you remember last week, the signs uh, in some measure bolstered Moses' faith. 
They were given to him in case he needed them to bolster the faith of the Israelite leaders. And now we're hearing that God wants these signs, these signs that bring about belief, he wants them shown to Pharaoh. And so the immediate question is, okay, is this to bring about faith or trust or belief or obedience in Pharaoh? Keep reading into verse 21. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So God directly says that he's going to directly harden Pharaoh's heart, mind, will, inner man. God will make him calloused and stubborn so that he will not believe and obey. And now that uh, that's hard enough to understand and accept, Yahweh continues, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, after showing him the signs, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Speaking of the tenth and final plague. And so God says to Pharaoh, obey, let Israel go. And if you don't obey, I will judge you and punish you and kill your firstborn son. But remember, God has already said, I will harden his heart and he will not obey. So if all we had was like verses 22 and 23, we could simply say, God promises to punish and indeed does punish Pharaoh for his sin and his lack of repentance and his lack of humility, his lack of submission, his lack of of obedience. We'd say, I don't like the sound of it, but it's awfully fair because Pharaoh at this point has been quite the oppressive, brutal, murderous dictator who did not obey God. But the difficulty for us, for me, is verse 21 where God promised to harden his heart and ultimately keep him from the opportunity of believing, repenting, and changing his course. Like it or not, and by the way, if you like it, there's something wrong with you, these verses clearly teach Pharaoh couldn't at this point surrender and God promised and in fact followed through on his promise that he would punish Pharaoh for not surrendering. How? does that make you feel? What does that make you think? See why I kind of wanted to fly through it and skip over it? I've tried. It's impossible to make these verses not say what they say. I've tried. I, I tried hard. If you know your Bible, if you're familiar with the conversation, you may know that it's tempting to try and explain verse 21 this way. The Exodus also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so when Exodus says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's simply communicating that God allowed Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh wanted and that Pharaoh is ultimately in control and that God hardens his heart in response to him. And so Pharaoh was primary and God was secondary. But unfortunately, as much as from one perspective, I wish that were the case, the book of Exodus won't play along with that theory. Of the 19 times in Exodus that mention the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, 16 of them attribute the cause of the hardening to God. Three of them attribute the cause to Pharaoh. Doesn't sound very secondary. And when Pharaoh is finally said to harden his own heart, chapter 8, verse 15, Yahweh has already been mentioned five times as the cause for the hardening of his heart. We're going to come to these, so I might as well tell you in advance. In chapter 8, verse 15, it explains why Pharaoh hardened his heart, decided to be stubborn, continued in arrogance and unbelief. Pharaoh, I'm quoting chapter 8, verse 15, hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron as the Lord had said. And so, as I've said, Paul 
mentions the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Romans 9. It's a specific example of a general truth. And Paul summarizes his point this way, verse 18 of chapter 9 in Romans. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, whoever he wishes, whoever he wants, whoever he plans. And God hardens whomever he wills, wishes, wants, and plans. Not he hardens whoever hardens themselves, but he hardens whoever he wants. Paul says in Romans what we see in Exodus, God chooses who to save, which means God also chooses who to not save. And so biblically, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Who was the cause of his stubbornness and his unbelief? Who was there that led to the punishment that included the killing of his firstborn son? God and Pharaoh both. That's what the Bible says. Exodus says both. God primarily and initially was the first cause. Pharaoh responsively and responsibly was the second cause. And so God was the sovereign cause and Pharaoh was the responsible cause. The Bible clearly says that God is sovereign over every human choice. And the Bible is also clear that man always chooses what he wants and that man is responsible for every choice. And there is the mystery. How exactly do these two realities exist? How can it be true? Um, It's mysterious. It's unknowable. It's baffling to our current limitations and categories and experiences. We can't get our mind around what the Bible clearly teaches. The Bible clearly teaches there are almost always two causes for everything that happens in our world. There is always a sovereign uh, cause that comes from God, and there is usually a secondary cause, uh, and the exception would be miracles and signs that, that humans normally bring about the second clause. And it's a great, mysterious doctrine. The theologians call it the doctrine of concurrence, two realities happening at the same time. So if you ask a physicist, why did a die turn up six? He would study the starting position, the velocity, the angle of the throw, the weight of the die, the angle of the cut on that die, and he would determine the cause of the six. But at the same time, you could just read Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, the cultural equivalent of dice. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So what caused the six? First, God caused the six. And second, physics caused the six. Who could, uh, well, let's say you could ask a meteorologist, why did it rain? They're going to tell you about clouds and barometric pressure and temperature and humidity and jet streams and ground elevation and gravity, and they're going to explain to you what caused the rain. But at the same time, you could simply read the numerous passages in the Bible, like Psalm 135.7, Matthew 5.45, that teach that God sends the rain. What caused the rain? Well, first, God did. And second, meteorological factors far beyond my understanding. You could have asked a much younger me, why did the bird fall to the ground? And I could explain how I accidentally pointed my BB gun at it, and I accidentally uh, aimed at the bird, and I accidentally shot the bird. Or you could just read Matthew 10. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. First cause, God. Second cause, responsible cause, me. You could ask a political scientist, how was Gaddafi finally overthrown? 
And he could explain the intergenerational realities, the political and ideological climate of Northern Africa as it relates to the Middle East, as it relates to Europe, the impact of technology and education, the retreat of Gaddafi uh, to certain, the bad selection of a sewage pipe for a hiding place. Or you could just read Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over all the nations. Romans 13, 1, every governing authority that exists has been instituted by God. What caused the overthrow and the change in power? God. And then factors of human nature and political science. You could ask me, why did I brilliantly uh, choose to marry Tricia? And, and why did she foolishly accept the offer? I could speak for days on my failed attempts at multiple volatile relationships before her and the ease with which we interacted with one another. I could tell you about my desire for a godly woman, my tendency to gravitate towards blonde athletic girls. I could explain the drunken stupor in which I got her and which she said yes. as a joke. I could tell you about her legalistic character that forced her to follow through on the yes once she figured out it was a bad idea. Or I could just read Proverbs 20.24, a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Psalm 139, in your book were written every day formed for me when as yet none of them existed. Well, why? Because I chose her and because God chose her for me. You can ask, why do Christians repent? Why do they humble themselves? Why do they confess their sins? Why do they trust in God for salvation and for life? And you can answer in a variety of ways as to why we chose this day to serve God. But at the same time, can read the Bible and learn that God wrote the names of the faithful in the Lamb's book of life before the world began, Revelation 13, that God has mercy on whomever he wills, Romans 9, that God gave us new hearts, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 24, that God regenerated us, recreated us, rebirthed us, James chapter 1, John, John chapter 3. So what caused our repentance and faith? First, God chose us, and second, we responsively and responsibly chose him for his beauty. You can ask Exodus, why was Pharaoh stubborn? Why didn't he repent? Uh, Why were the signs powerless to him? Why was he punished? And we can begin to guess at what motivated him in that day to choose to not obey. He wanted to keep his slaves in place building his cities. He wanted to have control and power. He he didn't want to fail and be that Pharaoh who lost uh, this slave labor block that had been serving the nation for hundreds of years. He didn't want to be told what to do by anyone. There's many reasons as to why Pharaoh hardened his own heart to the call of God. But at the same time, you can read Exodus 4.21 but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Thus saith the Lord. So who caused Pharaoh's hard heart? First, God hardened his heart. And second, Pharaoh responsively and responsibly hardened his own heart. He chose what he wanted. He really chose what he most wanted, and he really suffered the just consequences of his decision. And the entire time, God was accomplishing his purposes. His eternal decrees were coming about. He was in control of the entire situation. And so now, 
I realize that the doctrine of sovereignty, providence, concurrence is as hard as it is uh, to swallow. It's not as hard to swallow when good things happen, like a good spouse or eternal salvation, but it's really hard to understand and it's hard to accept when you consider evil and difficult things. How exactly can God be the one who decrees evil but doesn't do evil? How exactly can God cause us to make a willing and responsible choice? How exactly can God ordain evil from the beginning of time and then cause a heart to be hard that chooses that evil and then hold that heart accountable for that evil. How? And how exactly is our love for God a choice if He gave us the heart that would certainly choose Him? And for our text, how exactly did Pharaoh truly choose what he really wanted and be held accountable for it, but couldn't have ultimately done otherwise? And with all of these questions, we have to simply and humbly say, it's a mystery. At the end of the day, it's a mystery. The Bible teaches both realities, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And the Bible does not try and explain exactly how they both will work together and how they're both true at the same time. It's not as though if I would have gotten the PhD instead of the MDiv, I could have given you a better sermon. It's not as though the Bible teaches these two truths in completely different places and then avoids the apparent contradiction and the tension they create in us. It's not like the Bible just avoids it and you have to pick from one passage one and from another passage the other. The Bible teaches this, this biblical mystery together all the time. The Bible constantly confronts us with God's sovereignty and our responsibility all the time. And the next question is this, why the mystery? Why do it that way? And the answer, at least in part, is this. The mystery forces believers to humble worship. The mystery forces believers to humble worship. So remember, mystery, worship, sonship. So think about it. Is this not the question in your mind right now? How can God punish Pharaoh? Uh, How can God punish Pharaoh when Pharaoh could not resist his power and his will? Or said this way, why does God find fault and hold responsible if a human cannot ultimately resist his will and his power? And again, the Bible teaches these two truths together all the time. The exact question is raised by Paul in Romans 9. Paul has said that God has mercy on whoever he wants, and he hardens whoever he wants. And this is Paul in Romans 9. You will say to me then, he's speaking to an imaginary opponent in a debate, okay? You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Sounds like our question, huh? Listen to Paul's answer. Not, oh, I forgot to mention, there's this one truth that'll clear it up for you. It's not, oh, you can understand, uh, you're gonna understand that later in life as you get more wisdom. It's not, oh, it's a riddle, you have enough information, you need to think about it a little harder. It's not, you need to get the PhD instead of the MDiv. It's not, um, you know, you just need to pick one of those truths over the other and then beat people up that pick the opposite truth. This is what he says. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. And then he goes on to basically say, all of us are here for the glory of God. Some bring God glory by exhibiting his power and his wrath. And some of us exhibit the glory of God by being vessels of his mercy. And Paul says at the end of the day, who are we? Who are we to say to God, why did you do it that way? Paul's saying, show some humility. Show some respect. 
Show us some worship. Our posture in this mystery has to be humility and worship. Paul is saying how all this works out exactly is way above your pay grade. Like, that's just not information you're going to get in this life. And somehow, this makes total sense in the mind of God. In the mind of God, there is no contradiction. He completely understands. This is absolutely coherent. It is beautiful. It is brilliant. It is good, and it is obvious to Him, but it is not to us. Who are we to answer back to God? Who are we to say, explain this to me or I won't believe it? Who are we to say, explain this to me and I, or I won't worship you? The intention of this mystery is not that one day we will understand it if we just keep trying, but that we're compelled to humility and worship and submission and dependence and awe every time we're confronted by the mystery, which happens all day, every day. Look at our text. Verse 23 of Exodus 4. God says to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. Serve is the Hebrew word for worship, serve, slave, work, depending on where you read it. In Exodus 1, we read that the the Israelites were forced into bitter slavery or service to Pharaoh. In Exodus 3, God promises to bring the people out of Egypt that they might serve and worship him on Mount Sinai. And now God is saying to Pharaoh, they're not your slaves. They're not your servants. They're not here to worship you. God says they're my servants. They're my worshipers. They're my slaves or bondservants, as Paul would say in the New Testament. Why? What does God not say to Pharaoh? Hey, let them go. I'm going to explain all this to them in the wilderness. The whole hardening of your heart, I'm going to explain it to them, and then they're going to worship me. He's saying, no, they're being delivered from your power and control to be under my power and control. Worship is not God explaining uh, things to us, and we kind of pat him on the back because he did a good job. That's not worship. Worship is bowing down in adoration and awe and proclaiming the greatness and the goodness and the holiness and the mercy and the grace and the brilliance and the magnitude and the supremacy of God. That's worship. And so God gives us these doctrines about him, sovereignty, providence, concurrence. While clear, they are not fully understandable by us. And we cannot fully understand them in this life. But God gives them to us so that we might worship him. Think about every doctrine in the Bible, everything you know about God from the Bible. We can begin to understand and describe holiness, but as sinful creatures, we can't understand it fully. We can begin to understand and describe omnipresence, but getting our minds completely around the fact that God is everywhere all the time is just impossible for us. We can begin to understand that God is eternal and that he had no beginning, but being able to see it from every angle and knowing it fully is just too much for finite man. Think, think about this. All of God and all of God's attributes are meant to lead us to the worship of him. None of his attributes are fully understood by by us at, at this time. We worship him for what we do understand of him and we worship him for the fact that we can't completely understand him. If we could completely understand him, we'd be God and not him. Let my son go that he may worship and serve me. Now, before we move on, I think there are two inappropriate sinful responses that we tend to fall into when thinking of this mystery. Both are sourced in arrogance, but they look quite different. So as one who grew up in the Baptist world that tended to minimize the greatness of God, As one who by dumb luck 
landed in the Presbyterian world, which tends to minimize the greatness of man, as one who is now Presbyterian but doesn't like Presbyterians, there seems to be two wrong responses to this biblical mystery. And unfortunately, since I've been in both worlds, I'm guilty of both. On the one side, arrogance. Enemy number one is expressed like this. If I can't understand it, it can't be true. Explain it to me according to my categories and my experiences, and then I'll believe, and then I'll worship. On the other side is arrogance and smugness and presumption. Smugness. I've known this since preschool. Of course it's this way. And worship has left the building. Presumption. I'm trying to explain things more particularly and definitely than I can in faithfulness to the Bible. On the one side, if you don't explain it to me, I won't believe it. On the other side, let me explain it to you more than even what the Bible says about it. Both are arrogance. Both are sin. Both in need of grace. So we have to land the plane. Mystery, worship, sonship. So we've learned from our text, from Exodus, from other scriptures, that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a deep and profound mystery, that at the end of the day, uh, this mystery will either drive us to rebel in arrogance or it will drive us to worship in humility. And the text and the topic is inviting us to serve and worship God because He is greater than we are. He is superior to us. He is more immense than us. He's more than we could ever imagine. He is so glorious and weighty. He's so high and lifted up. And at the same time, additionally, the text is inviting us to worship God for His mercy, for His grace, for His intimate love. I don't want us to miss it. Look at verse 22 again. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Literally, my son, my firstborn. Not only does the Bible teach that believers are delivered by God to be his worshipers and his servants were also God's children by extravagant and expensive grace. While the idea does not show up a lot in the Old Testament, it shows up enough. It shows up a ton in the New Testament. This is the first mention of God's people being his children in all of the Bible. On the one side, a hardening we cannot understand, and on the other side, a love we cannot comprehend. And God is saying, I want you to worship me for both of these realities. The firstborn child in the ancient world was the favored, respected. It's the one given responsibility the child in the ancient world that received the double portion of the inheritance, the child that had the special and enviable relationship with the father. God doesn't just make us servants, although that would be enough and I would be happy for it. He makes us sons, firstborn sons. How can the smug and the presumptive and the arrogant and the demanding be loved like this? In Mark 1, we read that at Jesus' baptism, a booming voice ruptured the heavens and said this, an announcement to Jesus, you are my beloved son. Actually, it's you're my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And then this son, this beloved son, the son of God, this God chose to die the death we deserve. 
If you read the accounts of Jesus' death in the gospel narratives, and if you read the accounts of Jesus' death um, towards the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over and over, it's going to say people delivered Jesus up to be crucified. The Jewish religious elite delivered him up to be crucified. The Roman politicians delivered him up to be crucified. The Roman soldiers and centurions delivered him up to be crucified. But an amazing display of sovereignty and providence and concurrence. Listen to what Peter said in Acts, preaching to the people that killed him. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. One sentence, two sources of the cause. God and lawless men. And the glory of the gospel is this. The audience he is preaching to is the men who killed him. And when they repent, they get mercy and grace and forgiveness, and they get to be firstborn sons. Do you know that when you read in the end of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, do you know who's converted to the Gospel? The Jewish religious elite, the Roman politicians, the Roman soldiers and centurions, the members of the great high priest's family, those who chose to kill him because they didn't love him, and then in love with him accepted his death for them. Let's praise God. Jesus, we thank you for the mystery and the brilliance and the beauty and the breathtaking reality of your gospel. I am so thankful that you and your salvation are way over my head. I am so glad I would be a horrible Savior. I would be a horrible God. You are a brilliant and fantastic God. God, would you please forgive us for trying to manipulate you by understanding you in the categories that we enjoy? Would you please forgive us for trying to get others to think of you the way we do when your word does not push us there? Would you forgive us for demanding that you make yourself understandable to us before we worship you? Jesus, we thank you that for all of these, you died for us. We thank you that we cannot be plucked out of the Father's hand if we're in love with you. We thank you that you will carry us home, that even in all of these realities, before time began, you wrote exactly how you would save us to the uttermost. Would you continue on in that salvation? Would you give us great gratitude for it? In your name we pray.